Well, good morning. If you would like to, I encourage it to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. It's a really good thing I got started a couple minutes early. Just kidding. I'm half kidding. All right. that presentation. Let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have uh, provided for us, daily meeting all of our needs, supremely meeting our needs, our, our most dire need of a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, and providing for us the Word of God, that we could have a guide uh, for every situation, that we could have um, a book that is uh, so true and proves itself over and over. Um, not a book merely uh, to be hoped upon, uh, although we do have a great hope in the Word of God, but a book that we can read and use all of our faculties to uh, believe with great reason and great anticipation of the truths that it has in it for us. And I pray this morning that I would uh, be able to communicate what you would like us to hear and understand from this chapter. Uh, that I would not uh, dwell on uh, other things that are uh, not your will for this morning. So uh, please be with me as I seek to uh, honor you in that and be with each of us that we would be able to be attentive, uh, sensitive, and receptive to what you would have us see this morning. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Acts chapter 13, we're going to look at two or or bear in mind two primary ideas as we go through this chapter. The first one is we're going to see many instances of the Holy Spirit and his function and his work, some of them explicit, some of them we will have to um, kind of pull out and, and recognize and identify as the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're also going to see Paul, uh, Saul, at the start of the story here, give uh, a wonderful evidence, uh, present a case for evidence as Jesus, uh, as the Messiah, to the Jewish audience, the largely Jewish, Jewish audience that he is speaking to. So those are the two main things that I want to have us consider today. So we're going to read through and discuss as we go. Uh, so it's 52 verses, so we don't want to read it all up front and then read it again. So we'll push through together. Here we go. Acts 13, verse 1. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. There's so much to say about each of these men, but we'll consider Menaean just briefly because it has that interesting phrase there that he was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. The, the word literally means foster brother. He grew up with him. He was educated with him. He was a man of similar rank, of similar education. And yet, such different paths that their lives took, right? The, the decisions that these two men made led to such radically different outcomes in their life, right? Um, Herod sufficient to say he was not a cuddly person, right? He was not a good guy. He was vicious, cruel, nasty, mean. And here we see uh, Menaean, a man that grew up with him, brought to the Lord, right? The, the gospel, and we'll see this a couple times throughout, the gospel pierces through rank and education and intellect. And it is not just something for the apparently poor, right? Each person has a, a great spiritual need for the gospel, a deep uh, uh, poorness in that sense. But to the outside world, Sometimes we hear that the gospel is just a a, a security blanket or something to comfort those who desperately need it. But no, the gospel pierces intellect, rank, education. Verse 2, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. So they were they were worshiping probably deeply in prayer, uh, spending this time with the Lord and the Holy Spirit 
uh, provides some sort of revelation to them and says, uh, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one that selected and called them out for this, but he, the Holy Spirit asks the church to participate in this. So one thing that we see the Holy Spirit doing is setting apart, right? As believers, everyone who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have uh, jobs, tasks given to us that are universal for everyone in the church. But the Holy Spirit also calls and sets apart and assigns specific tasks to specific believers. Verse 3, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on him, they sent them off, right? And throughout the Bible, the laying on of hands is a recognition or a request for special favor or purpose, right? It's nothing, um, for lack of a better word, magical. There's no power, uh, particularly in the person laying the hands on, but it is rather to recognize, right? The Holy Spirit already did the setting apart and the calling, and they lay hands on and send them off. Verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Notice that the church sent them off. The Holy Spirit sent them out. They came down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. So the Holy Spirit sets apart. The Holy Spirit sends out, right? Uh, takes people and sends them out. And now for many of us, that may be to your neighbor. That may be to the store. Um, in this case, it was to islands and cities abroad that the Holy Spirit sent out uh, Saul at this point, Saul and Barnabas. We won't spend too much time on this, uh, but it is, I found it a helpful visual. So up here, don't have a laser pointer. Um, Antioch is where these uh, prayers and fasting and things occurred. And they went down to Seleucia so that they could sail over to the island of Cyprus. And arriving in Salamis, which is the kind of the chief port of Cyprus, they proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. Apparently, John Mark, he's mentioned in the previous chapter. So Saul and Barnabas are off. They're going to start bringing the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. And yet Paul or Saul I only have to say Saul for a few more verses. Um, Saul uh, goes first still to the synagogues, to the Jewish people, whether this was sort of a, a personal affection for the original people of God, right? God had chosen the, the, the nation of Israel, the people, the Jews, to receive his word. And uh, because of their rejection, which we'll see, he then sent it out and spread it to the whole world. But Saul, probably longing desperately for these these Jewish brothers of his, still on his mission now to start spreading it across the world uh, to other nations, always seems to go to synagogues first. Now, there apparently were non-Jews, there were Gentiles in many of these synagogues, as we'll read as we go on. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, right? So from Salamis to Paphos there, uh, 70, 80-ish miles. So this probably took several days of travel. Uh, as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, very tempting, very difficult, um, very difficult not to think that there's something special in the name Jesus here, Bar-Jesus, right? But Jesus was a very common name at the time. Bar-Jesus simply means son of Jesus, right? So this man was the son of his father who was named Jesus. And he was with the proconsul, or rather the governor of the island, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear God's message. So it seems that as uh, Saul, I don't even know if I keep saying Paul, forgive me. Saul, uh, as he travels across the island, it seems word of their message and their speaking reached Sergius. And he summons them uh, and desires to hear that message. He's an intelligent man. Here in the context at the time, this probably meant he was a bit of a philosopher, always desiring to acquire knowledge and hear more from different sources. But Elamas, the sorcerer, right? We just heard his name was Bar-Jesus. Now they're calling him Elamas. Uh, this is the meaning of his name, right? Elamas is an Arabic word meaning magician or sorcerer. And it's very likely that on the island of Cyprus, he was better known by the name Elamas. 
opposed them. He opposed Saul and Barnabas and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Why? Well, he was a false prophet. He was a a wicked person, a sorcerer. If the proconsul had come to hear the message of Christ and believed it, Elamas would be out of a job. He would be known, he'd be identified as a wicked, false prophet. So he doesn't want that. So he begins to, uh, in some manner, manipulate or try and turn the council, the proconsul away from the message that was coming. And that's uh, a common barrier today, right? Many people oppose the gospel, not simply because they disbelieve it, right? I think that's probably far less common that people actually genuinely disbelieve the gospel. They may convince themselves that they do, but often it's the love of popularity or power or influence that they, they, they fear giving up. They fear losing, right? If they come to the gospel. Verse nine, finally for me, then Saul also called Paul. And this is where his name switches in the scripture. There's lots of discussion as to why we're not going to go into that today, but his name switches here and he's now Paul from here on out. Filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer and said, you son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now, look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. Suddenly a mist and a darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Right. We're introduced to this man. His name is son of his father. Right. Son of Jesus. And Paul says, no, you're a son of the devil. I know who your father is. You're a son of the devil. Right. And the Lord's hand comes upon him, which often we pray for that. Right. That the Lord's hand would be upon us. Very Uh, if his hand comes in the right way, it's a great thing to experience. But the the hand of the Lord comes on him and he becomes blind, right? And now he's seeking another hand that would lead him around. And we come to another function of the Holy Spirit here, right? Often the Holy Spirit is gentle and quiet and tender. But there are times that the Holy Spirit sharply rebukes son of the devil right paul filled with the holy spirit now it's also interesting that the punishment that came on elias or or, uh, bar jesus here is i i would suggest quite merciful just in the preceding chapter we see herod uh, who receives glory from people saying uh, after a speech that um, you're not a man, you're God, right? And rather than giving that glory to God, he enjoys it. He relishes it. What was his punishment? Immediately struck dead. But here, Elamas, leading the proconsul away from the faith, he's blinded. And it says, for a time. It's an appropriate punishment, right? He was out seeking to blind others, right? To keep them blind. And now blindness comes on him. Early church tradition suggests that he actually came to the faith. We don't have that in the scripture, so we can't um, say that as a fact. But uh, whether he was a wicked uh, person purposefully and knowledgeably opposing the Lord or whether he was ignorant of the truth of the gospel and scripture, he was now very certain of God's opposition to him, right? Struck with blindness, all of his schemes and uh, tricks and ability to deceive his reputation gone. Absolutely brought to a rock bottom in an instant. And as the scripture says, blind for a time. But, Verse 12, the proconsul, seeing what happened, believed and was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, right? The teaching of the Lord, not only apparently the word of God presented by Paul and Barnabas, but now seeing the evidence of the word of God, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, the truth of these words converted and believes just like Menaean in verse one, this man, this governor, high intellect, seeking power, knowledge, a philosopher, right? Many of the, the philosophers in today's world pride themselves on we figured it out and God's not real, right? They're not the best philosophers, in my opinion. But here we have a man of high intellect, right? Always seeking knowledge, 
pierced by the gospel. He's a governor. He's in no, it doesn't seem that he's in any apparent um, earthly need, right? But we know he had a deep spiritual need and the gospel met that need. Paul and his companions, verse 13, set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So now they're at the end of the island over here on the middle bottom and they sail up to Perga in Pamphylia. John, however, left them and went back to Jerusalem. We won't spend too much time on that, but later in uh, throughout once or twice in scripture, uh, Paul references this as an abandonment. He does not approve of John leaving. We don't have all the details. We can speculate. We won't today. Uh, But this is a time that he left and Paul didn't like it. Verse 14. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Antioch in Pisidia. So up at the top here, we have biblical Antioch number two. Uh, Apparently, there are about 16 ancient cities called Antioch from a fellow who really liked naming cities Antioch. Uh, but these are the two that are sort of relevant in the scripture, right? Antioch of Syria, where he was sent out from, and now in Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went in to the synagogue, right? Continuing this pattern, uh, going first to the Jewish people. And after reading the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them. Right? So the, the leaders of the synagogue reading the law and prophets, and then they reach out to Paul and Barnabas and say, brothers, if you have any message of encouragement for the people, you can speak. So seeing uh, strangers here in their synagogue, recognizing them as Jewish, perhaps as a rabbi, uh, they supposed it was very likely that they had something to say. Traveling, visiting speakers, right? Itinerant rabbis. Uh, and this is not entirely unusual uh, uh, in the time, right? After the reading of the word, the leaders of the synagogue may well have allowed others to speak. But nonetheless, we can see this again as work of the Holy Spirit, setting appointments, right? Bringing a doctor to the sick, as as the scripture sort of describes this. The sick, those in spiritual need. Uh, Paul now comes in as a, the doctor in this example to the sick to bring the cure, to bring the message of the gospel that they need. Verse 16, Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God. Right. So it seems there's uh, non-Jews here. Right. Uh, Non-Jews being uh, we call them the Gentiles, which means everyone besides the Jews. Um, One commentator said this could have been uh, Gentiles who were converted to Judaism or it could be Gentiles that were hanging around the back. Right. We're not quite sure what, what they were doing here, but there were Gentiles within earshot. In the synagogue. This is Paul's first recorded sermon. And I think uh, this is, I mean, obviously this is Paul giving the gospel to Jewish people. But it strikes me as one of the most powerful presentations of the gospel to a Jewish audience that I've ever looked into and studied. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, this is now Paul speaking, chose our ancestors, exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt and led them out of it with a mighty arm. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Uh, So what he starts with is very common, right? Uh, A history of Israel. He's sort of going through the things that happened in their past, right? Building his authority, um, building favor and trust with his audience. Uh, There's a few manuscript differences here. Some uh, in verse 18 would say that he nourished them in the wilderness, right? A little bit of a different meaning. Did he put up with them or did he nourish them? We could spend a lot of time on that or we could say it was both, right? He took care of them. He provided everything they needed. And he also put up with a lot of their shenanigans, right? So uh, in any case, Paul is now opening up this, this history of Israel, Verse 19, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land to them as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. 
I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man loyal to me who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, according to the promise, God brought the Savior, Jesus, to Israel. So Paul is saying, according to the promise, the Savior, the Messiah, came to Israel as a descendant of David. Well, what promise is he talking about? Second Samuel 7, uh, the Lord speaks and says uh, to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this seemed to be uh, somewhat beginning its fulfillment in David's sons, who continued to reign and be kings. But then the promise says this in Second Samuel. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, every throne, including David's, they, those men died, right? They would come to power, they would die. They would come to power, they would die. But there's a promise that that throne would be established forever. And what Paul is going to start to present here, this case, is that the Messiah, the one who would be David's descendant and reign on that throne forever, it was Jesus and he's going to start a case as to why that is true. So in verse 24, he says, Before he, before Jesus, uh, came, came to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John, the last prophet before Jesus would begin uh, fully and completely his ministry. Um, John, as he was preaching and teaching to Israel... Uh, he sought a baptism of repentance, right? Turning from your sins and turning to the Lamb of God, to the Savior that would come. Verse 25, as he was completing his life's work, he said, uh, as he was very popular, right? Uh, many people started to wonder if John was the Messiah. And so as he comes to the end of his life's work, he says, who do you think that I am? I am not the one. But look, someone is coming after me and I'm not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. John had the privilege of being one of the most uh, straightforward, explicitly clear prophets, right? Many of these prophets saw uh, visions and had understanding to a degree of the Messiah and would tell about him. And John got to say, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. It's there. And yet... Many disbelieved. They wondered, how could this man be the Messiah? Some believed, right? Shortly after John said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There were people that began to say, this is the Messiah. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of Abraham's race, fellow Jews, right? And those among you who fear God, Gentiles. The message of this salvation has been sent to us for the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they didn't recognize him or the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled their words. They fulfilled the words of the prophets by condemning Jesus. What does he mean? So since the Jews did not recognize Jesus as Messiah, they rejected him. They condemned him. But the Messiah's rejection was prophesied. Isaiah 53 describes him as one who was despised, rejected, afflicted, oppressed. So in rejecting him, in saying this is not the Messiah, they continued to fulfill messianic prophecy about him. Now they found no grounds, verse 28, they found no grounds for the death penalty. And they asked Pilate to have him killed, right? How dare this man say the things he's saying, uh, claiming to be equal with God, put him to death. Now, part of this, something to kind of keep in mind as we look at this, is the Jews, they did know the Old Testament, but they had sort of picked and pulled out their favorite bits uh, of what the Messiah would be like. And they saw a powerful, militant, political leader riding in and bringing them justice and liberation. So this Jesus coming in so quiet and humbly didn't seem to fit the bill. Now, they're right. Jesus is supremely powerful. And there's going to be a lot of um, the sort of things the Jews were looking for, but not when Jesus first came to begin his ministry. And that's because they missed, right? They missed prophecies 
describing his rejection and his suffering. They didn't understand how that could be the Messiah. So they wanted this man killed. They didn't believe him because he didn't fit what they expected. And when they had fulfilled all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. Many things were written about him, but what I want to look at here again is in Isaiah 53. Very specific sufferings and even his death was prophesied. Isaiah 53 says that he would be pierced as, as Christ was on the cross. Chastised, wounded and silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Now, this was a claim that many rejected. And there's so much to be said about evidences and truth of the resurrection, but we'll look only as far as Paul did today. And so that's what he wants to begin to explain, that the resurrection was actually prophesied. Now, if the resurrection was prophesied, it follows that the Messiah, the Savior, had to die. You can't be resurrected unless you die. So he's going to say the resurrection itself was prophesied. And just from that, you can tell that the Savior would die. So the fact that this man was crucified does not disqualify him from the potential of being the Messiah. Verse 31, after God raised him from the dead. He appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. So, the Messiah's rejection prophesied, specific sufferings, his death prophesied. Jesus experienced these things. I don't think anyone, even the Jews, would argue that he experienced rejection and suffering and death. But Paul now says the resurrection couldn't have been a hallucination, right? This is, I would say, an implication here. He appeared for many people over a period of weeks, right? Uh, to, it's more of a modern argument, maybe a few years ago. It's really doesn't, no one really holds to that anymore. N no one that's studying it. Um, that the resurrection was a hallucination, which is wrong for so many reasons, right? He, he appeared to many people over many weeks, right? That's not really how hallucinations work. He appeared to large groups of people at the same time. Also not really how hallucinations work. He appeared in a physical resurrected body, which is also not how hallucinations work, because hallucinations typically come based on what people believe and expect, right? There were people that doubted the resurrection. The Jewish uh, belief of seeing someone after they died would have been that it was a spirit. So he came physically in front of a people, uh, surprising them, uh, different groups, different numbers, different times over multiple days. His resurrection was not a hallucination. Well, was it a scheme? Did he ever even die? Was it a fake? Did these people come together and say, let's pretend that we all saw the resurrected Savior? It says they are his witnesses to the people. At the time of this writing, uh, recently, John the Baptist, that final prophet, had been beheaded because of his unwavering faith and belief in God and Jesus and the ethics and the morals that Jesus was taught. Taught. Um, Willing to have his head chopped off for that. Uh, Paul, the person now teaching before he became a believer and a Christian, saw the stoning of Stephen, a man who was r willing to be killed by rocks thrown at him for his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in just the previous chapter, James was killed by the sword. These men ready to suffer terrible deaths for their belief in the resurrection. Not a scheme. And over the coming years, many more would suffer terrible, cruel tortures and uh, sufferings and crucifixions because of their belief that Jesus truly was resurrected from the dead. Such an assurance, such a confidence in the truth of who the Lord Jesus is is another function of the Holy Spirit. He sincerely assures us, right? These men were Sincere. They weren't scheming. They absolutely believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Verse 32. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, right? The children of our ancestors, us. How did he fulfill that promise? 
What promise? The promise to David that his throne would be filled forever. He fulfilled that by raising up Jesus. Now, here we have Paul, an inspired apostle, explaining Old Testament scripture to us and telling us what it means, which is the best commentary we could possibly have. From Psalm 2-7, uh, it says, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or many would say, today I have begotten you. Now, Jesus is called the Son of God for a number of reasons. One of them is that the Holy Spirit conceived uh, the Lord Jesus Christ through the Virgin Mary, right? So he is the Son of God because God is his Father. But here we have an explanation that he is called the Son of God because uh, in Psalm 2 it says, I have begotten you, I have become your Father. And Paul says this is about the resurrection. How does this make sense? Well, first of all, the word begotten can mean brought into existence or caused, right? It doesn't always mean birth in the sense that we understand it. And in the New Testament scriptures, Colossians 1.18, Revelation 1.5, we hear Jesus described as the firstborn from the dead. Romans 1.4, right? Uh, Jesus, who has been declared to be the powerful son of God. How? Why? By his resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. And so Paul says... Uh, this psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father, is a prophecy, a reference to the resurrection of the Messiah. Verse 34. Since he raised him up from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to David. Second Samuel, your throne will be established forever. Psalm 89, that it would be a firm throne through all generations. Psalm 132, that the fruit of his body would be set on the throne and in verse 35 here, it says, um, therefore, he says in another passage, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay or to see corruption. Psalm 1610. But verse 36, for David, after serving his own generation in God's plan, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed. He saw corruption. So the promise is that you will, you, your throne will not see corruption. But David died and saw corruption. So did all of his sons and every human that came after him until... We come to a resurrected Savior, which is necessary for these promises to be true. Someone that would be resurrected permanently, never to die again. That's what he says in verse 37. The one God raised up did not see decay or did not see corruption. So not only is the resurrection of the Messiah prophesied, it, it is necessary for the other prophecies to be true. That one would reign forever and suffer and be rejected and die. Now, a quick aside, since we're actually doing pretty good on time. The promise that was made to David was conditional. First Kings chapter two. If your sons pay close attention to their way, if your sons pay close attention to their way, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And he gives a few examples of obeying the law and things like that, walking in the spirit. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The promise was conditional, but the promise was also certain. Jeremiah 33, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant may be broken so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. There's others, Isaiah 9, right, that the, the end of his, there would be no end to his kingdom. The government would be upon his shoulder. But we see the, the promise made to David as conditional, but also certain. How do we reconcile that? When we see something conditional and certain, you can be sure that God is going to intervene and fulfill that himself. Right? God, in the person of Jesus, met the, the conditional aspect of that covenant because it was certain. There was no other way that you, you couldn't rely on a human man to fulfill these things. So we see this conditional and certain covenant 
And we know that God would intervene to fulfill those conditions. Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Jeremiah 33 connects the promises of the Messiah. Uh, The one who would fill the throne would also be someone who fulfills and fills the Levitical priesthood, right? The Old Testament, God gives a system of sacrifices for the the, um, people's sins, right? These priests would go in, they would uh, kill animals according to the law, the blood would be shed uh, over and over and over, continually offering these sacrifices. Jeremiah 33. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence. To offer burnt offerings, to offer grain offerings, and to make sacrifices, right? So this Messiah who would fill the throne of David would also fill the position of priest, the person who would make offerings and sacrifices. Isaiah 53, this is a common, common verse. We hear it all the time. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. The Messiah was the fulfillment of the priesthood. He was the high priest, and he was also the lamb to be sacrificed. That priest sacrificed himself on the cross. Verse 39, everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses, right? Uh, we'll, We'll read a little bit in Hebrews 10 here, which sort of goes on to explain that the law and all of these things were pointing forward to something that would be perfect and better and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. The law uh, always had been a mirror, an x-ray, showing what was wrong with the people, showing them that they could not meet God's standards, but not providing a way to fix it until the Messiah would come, filling the throne, filling the priesthood. And Jesus did that. And as he died, as he gave himself as the lamb, as the sacrifice, what did he say? One of the things he said, it is finished. Hebrews 10 now. How do we bring this together? Bringing the, uh, the Messiah, the final priest, offering a sacrifice in light of what we see in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system. Hebrews 10 explains it. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, It can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have stopped offering since the worshipers, once they were cleaned, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, right? If if that priesthood actually removed sin and cleansed and forgave and purified, why do they keep offering sacrifices? Hebrews 10 continues, In these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, the work done. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 40, in light of this, so Paul says, you've seen how all of these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, even in his death and his suffering and his rejection by you all. Beware, verse 40, that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. And then he quotes Habakkuk 1.5, look, you scoffers, marvel and perish or vanish away. Because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. So in the context of Habakkuk 1, um, there's a warning of the Chaldeans coming and destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple. Now, this beautiful, splendid temple, this God-protected temple, the Jewish people no doubt have trouble believing the Chaldeans aren't going to destroy our temple. They wouldn't believe it in time to avoid it, at least. And that was fulfilled in 586 as as 
Jerusalem and the temple was indeed destroyed by the Chaldeans. But the same idea now Paul draws out here, that those who hold God's activity and work in contempt will perish. Jesus even prophesied uh, one possible fulfillment of this in saying that the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down, speaking um, of the destruction that would come a few decades after his own crucifixion. And ultimately, right, in the eternal punishment and perdition of those who reject Jesus as Messiah, Jewish or not. And that concludes Paul's message. How do the people react? Verse 42. There's a lot of manuscript differences in verse verse 42 as to who left and who begged and what happened. Here's what mine says. As they were leaving, the people begged that these matters be presented to them the following Sabbath. Now, you may have something about the Jews leaving, the Gentiles begging, so on and so forth. Here's the point. Some people wanted to hear more, right? So they asked, we want to hear these things next week, the following Sabbath. And after the synagogue had been dismissed, again, more... uh, um, Discrepancy here between versions. Don't get distracted by it too much. After the synagogues had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. So again, a mixed crowd, Jews and Gentiles. And I can imagine, right, Gentiles, whether they were converted to Judaism or whether they were just kind of listening in, when they hear this message of, Jesus offered one sacrifice, and it's done, and it's finished. I'm on board with that. They'd been hearing this Jewish uh, education of all these laws and rules, and do this, and don't do that, and do this on this day, and this time, and this thing. And then these men come in and say, Jesus filled it all. Just believe in him. We're on board with that. And some of the Jews believed as well. Now, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Evidence of genuine conversions that were occurring here, right? The Holy Spirit, when we accept the Lord Jesus as Savior, seals us. He seals believers with a confidence and a permanent assurance of salvation. And Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue on in that grace and growing in the knowledge, right? And regardless of the method or the means, it's always the work of the Holy Spirit that brings people to an awareness of their sin and to salvation, right? In this case, Paul and Barnabas happen to be those uh, instruments of mercy, if you would. Verse 44, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the message of the Lord. Verse 15, right? He set appointments to bring a doctor to the sick, and now he's setting appointments to bring the sick to the doctors, right? The whole town now comes to hear Paul and Barnabas. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to oppose what Paul was saying by insulting or reviling him, or some say by blaspheming. Just like Bar-Jesus, they saw this, and whether they were uh, sincerely wrong or not, they saw this as a threat, an existential threat to their entire religion, system, political influence, religious influence. If this is true, then we're out of our positions and out of our job and out of our rank as well. So they oppose him, they insult him, likely threatened him. But Paul and Barnabas boldly said, it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first, not only by God's planning, but also by Paul's pattern and his preference. But since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Right? They, they, they effectively deemed themselves unworthy by refusing to see the prophecies fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they reject it. And so they, they spread the message to the whole world, to all nations, to the Gentiles. And in their threats to Paul and Barnabas and in their insulting and in their reviling, what do Paul and Barnabas do? They speak boldly, right? They don't shy away. They're not frightened of these people. The Holy Spirit here strengthening their faith, right? Similar to to the sincere assurance we saw in verse 31. But here now, instead of an endurance, it is an action. It is an active boldness 
despite opposition. Despite, uh, right, right, in the face of unpopularity and danger, uh, a confident faith and assurance. One quote from a commentator said, The contradictions and blasphemies of sinners often show that their consciences are alarmed that the truth has taken effect. And that is not the time to shrink, but to more fearlessly declare the truth. Verse 47, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Quoting from Isaiah 49, verse 6, although throughout Isaiah there's a huge number of references to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the people that would receive salvation and be redeemed. Jesus came, right, and life was in him, a uh, light was in him, and that was the, the light in the life of man. And he did much of that work beginning to, to shine light. He spoke mostly to Jews, but he definitely uh, brought salvation and impacted the life of many Gentiles. But now he has sent out his disciples and his apostles that they would continue on this work of bringing the light to all nations, right? That is the Great Commission. All nations and all peoples. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Right? There's lots to be said about that verse. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. And there's, unfortunately, division in different camps on when you see the words like appointed or uh, predestined. There's an unfortunate amount of division there. But here's what we can all agree on. The Lord knew who would believe. Absolutely. And he sent Paul and Barnabas to those he knew would believe. And what happens? The message of the Lord spreads throughout the whole region. Verse 50, the Jews incited the prominent women who worshiped God and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. They took their shoes off and they shook the dust off of their feet against them. And they went to Iconium. Which was told by them, uh, Jesus said that in Matthew 10, 14, uh, that if anyone would not hear their message to, to shake the dust off of their feet against that house or that town. And what's the result of all this? This rejection, this expulsion from the city. 52, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit satisfies completely. Now, no doubt, Paul and Barnabas were pleased to see the fruit of their preaching and see these people coming to salvation. But I would suggest to you far more than um, the outcome of their efforts, they were pleased with the, the knowledge that they were obeying the Lord Jesus, right? In our Wednesday night studies, we've looked at that a little bit. First Thessalonians to chapter four or to verse four, um, that they, they speak not to please men, but to please God, right? So absolutely satisfied in the Holy Spirit and satisfied knowing that they were obeying God. Now that is, right, we see two things here. One, the Jesus as Messiah resurrected, right? That he was the prophesied Messiah, that he was resurrected and reigns eternally on the throne. And as as our high priest is is Christianity, that is the fundamentals, that is the basis and the foundation for all of our faith. And then we see here one of the key outcomes, the key benefits, right? Many of these functions of the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit satisfies completely, right? The human condition is seeking out satisfaction, more of this, more of that, more money, more position, more relationships, more of this. And I, I don't suggest that we ought not to strive in our life, but that our satisfaction should be completely and totally grounded in the person of the Lord Jesus, the assurance and satisfaction we have in the Savior. And as we seek to, who wants to make more money? Right? That's not a bad thing. Um, as we seek to do these things, we do them to the glory of the Lord and for his honor, right? Not desiring these things, not looking for these things for satisfaction, but rather completely satisfied. Now opening ourselves up, obeying the Holy Spirit, having joy regardless of the outcome, being expelled from a city, being punished, not having uh, reaching the things we thought we ought to reach. Total satisfaction in the Holy Spirit and in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
is the present prize and reward uh, for the Christian. So, for any who might listen and not have that satisfaction, right? That's one of the, um, I would suggest, greatest witnesses in the Christian's life is to be satisfied despite our circumstances. And that's available to all who would recognize Jesus as Messiah. Now, the Jews that he's speaking to, they had the Old Testament. It was even more abhorrent that they didn't see the coming Christ and Messiah. But the same is true for us. We have no reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah without the Old Testament. Right? Just like the Jews, we ought to see that Jesus, oh, he is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. What an assurance and an edification to us as believers, right? That we can trust that he is the Messiah and place our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have that complete satisfaction and be effective workers and tools for what the Holy Spirit is doing here on the earth. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the intricate, beautiful, coherent tapestry that it paints over over millennia and a number of authors, God, that you would be so consistent and so clear that we would have so much to stand on in our faith. And we thank you that you provide us, even in this life, um, the Holy Spirit. So not only do we have a hope of the life to come, but we have a comforter and a counselor and a satisfaction here and now. Uh, Please help us to live in light of that and be desperate uh, to obey you in sharing it with others. That we would be bold, that we would attend the appointments you set for us and be open to the appointments you bring to us and uh, be sincerely Uh, believers ready to uh, evidence our faith if it uh, we praise you that we don't have that level of persecution here in our country now but uh, we pray that we would each uh, by the power of the spirit be able to withstand uh, such things continue to be a witness and we do look forward to that glorious hope when all of this is fulfilled and we are in the presence of the lord jesus um, no longer only hoping but now rejoicing in his presence Uh, be with us today as we apart and return to our homes and uh, keep these things on our hearts and minds. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.